I think it's time we call the Jim Crow South what it has always been. It was a domestic terror regime. That's what it was, plain and simple. Hello and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film that highlights our people, our communities, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio, and this week we're speaking with Little Marvin, creator of Amazon Prime's latest horror anthology series, Them, which premiered on April 9th and has caused quite a stir. Now I'm going to do something a little unusual, and that is I'm going to give you a spoiler alert and a trigger warning. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen them, if you want to be surprised, if you don't want details revealed about the plot, about what happens to these people, about the intent behind it, then please pause this podcast, listen to it when you're done with the show. Now for the trigger warning, truly, I don't think there's been a project in recent memory that warranted a trigger warning the way that them does. We are going to talk about some of the darkest moments of the project. They are very violent. They are traumatic. And I don't want anyone who feels like they are all stocked up on the trauma, on brutality, on violence inflicted on Black bodies. This project is probably not for you right now. And this conversation might not be for you right now. So I just want to give everyone a second, think about it for real. Don't say I didn't warn you. Art is subjective, always. I can look at a painting and say it looks like my five-year-old did it while someone else declares it a masterpiece worth $10 million. It's really no different with filmmaking, with storytelling, and I'm not terribly interested in the back and forth about why someone likes something or doesn't like something. What I am interested in is intent and impact, and that's what I wanted to discuss with Little Marvin. Because of my job, I often see projects weeks or months before they hit the masses. And when I saw them, it was a viewing experience unlike any other I've ever had. The first four episodes, I was struck by the look of the show, the authenticity of the time. I was captivated by how beautifully shot it was and how brilliantly acted it was. I thought Allison Pill and Anika Noni Rose and Deborah and Ashley really all brought their A-games when it came to their performances. I was intrigued by the story and I was curious enough to keep watching. And then episode five hit and I was not okay. I was angry, I was shocked, hurt. In a way, I felt victimized by the material. Like, I didn't ask for this, I don't want this. This is way too far, it is way too graphic. Like. What? Doesn't this Black creator know how traumatized we are daily as Black folks? Does he really think that in the wake of George Floyd and in the wake of everything that we've endured and continue to endure, that we really need a mirror held up to us to remind us how brutal this world and this country has been? Doesn't he know that racists will love this disgusting, depraved representation and they would love to see depictions of Black people being tortured, raped, a Black infant murdered, couples' eyes stabbed out, burned alive, like... What is wrong with him? Read the room. I was rattled. I was angry and I was triggered so much so that I considered not participating in the junket. For those of you who don't know how a junket works, it's like a press day where there's a billion reporters invited and one by one, we kind of rotate for like three to five minutes to the cast and the creators of projects like this. 
And we try to cram as much information into that short window as possible. In this case, I didn't feel like talking to little Marvin. I didn't feel like praising the good parts because I was so overwhelmed by what felt to me like the problematic parts of this project. I called my friend who was expecting her first child and was like, Yo, under no circumstances should you watch this before you give birth. Do not watch this. You do not need this imagery in your head. And that was a big statement from someone like me who really feels like whether I like it or not, all art is valid. And I think that every artist has a right to assert their point of view. Still though, this project, them, really... It bothered me. It disturbed me to my core. And I really wrestled with that. Fortunately, little Marvin and his team agreed to a longer conversation with me at a later time. And I felt like despite my feelings, despite my emotions, despite my visceral reaction to this piece, I thought it warranted and deserved a conversation. And I'm so glad that we're able to have that kind of conversation here on Acting Up. This is what this podcast was designed for. It's a place to have the conversation sparked by art like this, whether those talks are exciting and hopeful or difficult and stressful. Even if something is controversial, I think there's still discussions worth having. And fortunately, Little Marmon was willing to have that conversation with me just a few days after them premiered on Amazon Prime. Now people have seen it. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people didn't get it. Some people think it was brilliant and brave and others think it was irresponsible trauma porn. But one thing is for sure, people are talking about it and they are engaging with it, even if that engagement looks like rejection. So let's just dive into this candid conversation I had with little Marvin. We talked about the parts of them that I like. We talked about the parts I didn't. I wanted to know why the brutality was necessary. I wanted to know if he considered the fragile state of the community right now. And I wanted to know how he feels about the impact this project had on me and the impact it's having on the public. This is not one of those episodes you should play out loud in the kitchen while you're washing dishes or making dinner for the kids. This is an adult conversation. We're going to touch on really graphic things, really violent things, really scary things. And I just want you to be prepared for that. Here we go. I thought that them did a lot of things really, really well. I mean, so impressive, particularly in what it looked like. You know, it was a very rich kind of environment that really transported me back to that time immediately and throughout. And it also hit close to home because my father and my grandparents were part of that great migration from Missouri straight to East Compton while it was still predominantly white, the early 60s. And so it felt like the first time I had seen that part of my family's journey on screen. And I think it's so easy for people to think that Compton's always been what it is now. And it's not. Nothing has always been what it is now. And I wondered if covenant, like the actual covenant in those contracts, I was so struck by the fact that it's like they're written, you see them, but we've kind of done away with them now, just ignore it and keep going. And so they do kind of the way that we do and continue to do with the foundation of this country, right? Like our laws, our policies, some of those racist laws 
are actually written down and people are like, they don't really count anymore. It's fine. We've moved on until some shit happens. And then it's do not tear down this monument or do not gather and protest. I mean, was that part of, you know, am I making up that kind of parallel or was that intentional? You're absolutely not making it up. And that's the truth. Things can be struck down in law, but not in practice, as we know, right? So you're you're mentioning exactly that. Covenants were struck, I think, in 48 by the Supreme Court case. But then that allowed neighbors to continue through property owners associations and homeowners associations and in a cabal of forces with real estate agents and brokers and appraisers and city planners and lenders and bankers to really work in cahoots and make sure that that net of inequity and that net of exclusion continued. So whether it's in law or not in law, as we know, (laughs) it doesn't really matter if people are practicing it. Mm -hmm. And that's very much still the case. And I think a lot about even just current fears that I know I've shared. I know other Black folks I know have shared. Will I get that loan? Will I not get that loan? When they meet me, will I get that house? Now they've heard me on the phone, but when they see me, (laughs) will I get the house or not get the house? Why does it feel like my house is getting appraised for far less than that house over there? These are feelings that are built on a system of disenfranchisement. They're not feelings that we have in a bubble. So I think drawing a line from that and realizing that something happening 60, 70 years ago is still very much part and parcel of the way we live, even if it's invisible, was very much the point. Yeah. I thought another thing it did so well is really capturing the frustration of what I guess we're calling microaggressions. They seem macro to me, but like Henry in the workplace, right? And like screaming into that, you know, whatever he wadded up to muffle his screams of frustration and that like shutting up and taking it. I thought that this show did such a good job of tapping into that and conveying it and conveying it to possibly for people who don't get it, haven't gotten it. What's the big deal about touching your hair? Like, what's the big deal about, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And I have to say, like you use the word microaggressions and you say, I'm not sure that they are. I absolutely don't think they are. I think that there is a concomitant effect because it's never just one microaggression. It's a history of microaggressions that you've experienced on every level of your being since you were a child when they're first playing with your hair till you going to work as an adult in your 40s and them bringing you down a peg. Even if you're the most intelligent, (laughs) studious and with it person in the room, there's always that one person to just bring you down a peg. And so these are microaggressions that over time, it creates a web inside of you. And there is a concomitant effect psychologically, emotionally, physically, psychically, that is to be paid for that. So I don't think of that word. I don't think it's micro at all. I think it's macro. (laughs) And it's always been macro. I think I told you, I thought Alison Pill was so committed. That's one word for it. That's one word for it. But I was disappointed in the way that her character, like she felt so crucial and so much of like what might happen felt so contingent on what she might do. And then it felt like after, I don't know, episode five or six, she kind of did some white woman shit and got murked for it, it, you know, (laughs) using the milkman and met her end. But it it didn't give me any kind of vindication against her. You know, I wanted like the Emery's to kill her or like let her get hit by a bus or... (laughs) A bus driven by the Emery's? Yeah, perhaps that. But I wondered why the backstory on her? Because I almost felt like the bit with her dad, like, are we supposed to feel sorry for her? She's racist because she's damaged. Why did we need that? I would say before the backstory piece of it, it's interesting. Life is so rarely like what you've just described. 
life, actual life, very rarely does the Emory family member get a bus <laughs> and go and do it. Very often, it's more complex and more nuanced than that. We were after something different. And we knew going into that, there were going to be a contingent of folks. And by the way, I've gotten messages. I thought Lucky was going to invoke the elders and become a superhero. And I said, well, I don't know where you saw the cape, but there was never a cape. Maybe a beautiful faux capelet, <laughs> but there was never going to be a cape in this show because the show wasn't interested in capes. The show wasn't interested in coddling or placating anybody. And by the way, I mean, white and black, it wasn't interested in doing that. I think a lot of things coddle, and I think there's a time and a place for that. We weren't particularly interested in giving you the easy way out because so often in life, we don't get that easy way out. So I would say that to the first bit. And the second bit, no, I mean, I don't like to give people an experience or tell people what to feel about it. All I will say is that, no, I don't think drawing a line from Betty's past to her present, the line is not that black and white. It's not because she had these things X. But I think it's up to viewers to decide the how and the why and to live with these folks and come to their own. I was like, I don't care about this bitch. Why am I hearing about uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest, you know. Oh, I love that. But you're allowed. I mean, of course. Yeah. yeah. Everybody eat to each their own. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so I have never, not just not used, but even really subscribed or paid much attention to the word or the ideology behind trauma porn. That's nothing that I've ever described a project as or felt like I could relate to the people who do talk about that. But what I will say is that when I watched episode five, in the, and we didn't have any trigger warnings, the journalists didn't get those. Is that right? Okay. And so I was also taken off guard, not braced. And I felt immediately like, I wonder if there are really racist racists who will get hard watching this. That's what I thought in my mind. And I continued watching and, and went through it. And I was very rattled by it. I was very distraught by it. I woke up the next morning crying that we would have to talk about it because I felt like, I don't, I, I just, I felt traumatized by it. And I also felt like we have a right to that trauma and we have a right to present it in all of its ugliness. I felt that immediately too, but it, I'm being very honest when I say it was the first time I felt actually traumatized by the experience. Like, I wish I didn't see it. I wish somebody told me about it and I read about it, but I wish I didn't have the visual. And so I wondered for you as a creator, hearing that part, that genuine part, how do you feel? I feel everything hearing that. I feel everything hearing that. And here's what I would say about, first, there's many things I feel about that particular thing you just said. My first thing is gratitude to you for sharing that with me, because I take that in and I'm taking all of it in. I would say about that, that the first thing about the trauma piece, because there is a lot of talk about that piece and we never set out to make a show about trauma, about black trauma. We set out to make a show with black folks that centered black folks, that was complex, that was nuanced, that was emotionally rich. But the show was always about navigating the terror of whiteness. It was not about 
exploring black trauma. It was about navigating the terror of whiteness and particularly the terror of white supremacy in this country. And I think it's time we call the Jim Crow South what it has always been. It was a domestic terror regime. That's what it was. Plain and simple. We're talking about a place where lynching was a pastime. Lynching was a sport and a spectacle. There were lynching spectacles. I don't want to get too deep. You know the history. I don't have to tell you. In crowded places, and you see the pictures, very proud and happy people around a body that has just been brutalized. This is the history of the country. I don't think it's our business as artists to whitewash that history. I think it's our business as artists, personally speaking, to bear witness. It's my job to bear witness. It's my job to listen. It's the first thing I did when I sat down to write it. It sounds perhaps silly or grandiose or over the top to say that you're honoring the elders or that you're listening to the elders, but it would be a lie for me to not say it. You make a decision to honor that past and then you have to honor it truthfully. I think that particularly episode five, so I think about history as a house. And I think that I could have told the same story as a documentary about redlining. I could have found one family and made a biopic. I could have made, you know, a story about Jim Crow. That to me is about just going through the front door of history. And I wasn't particularly interested in that. I wanted to creep around to the back of the house, bust open a basement window and let myself into the basement level of history where the darkest, most frightening things live. And if I gave you that crime in a way that you've seen it before, if this was a slave narrative, if it was a piece of police brutality, it allows your brain, I think, to put it in a safe space. Oh, I've seen that before. I know what that is. Yeah. You've never seen this before. And so in a way, what I think it does is it brings the viewer a bit closer to the treachery and to the true sickness at the heart of the Jim Crow experiment. And so I feel every feeling and I feel them all with you. And by the way, I felt them all too when I wrote it Mm. and I resisted the writing of it. I've never felt this before in my life. I resisted the writing of it tooth and nail until I realized, well, I've never felt this before. And as an artist, I feel like part of my gig is to explore the things that terrify me the most, especially as a horror writer. Yeah. So I don't know if that, answers (laughs) it does you know I mean it does because of course it's easy to like lead with our emotions and our reactions just like I told you I woke up crying I didn't want to talk to you I was mad like I was not mad I was scared I was mad I didn't know how I felt I know what I feel always about art which is that we all have a right to it and I know how I feel about our stories and us telling our stories the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I was grappling with that. And those emotions are valid. I also think that we are, Anika said something interesting to me. She said, I'm not scared of people's anger. There are a lot of people who should be angry that aren't. And there are a lot of people who are angry who don't have any right to be. And that really made me think, maybe right now, me, entertainment director at the GRIO, talking about race and trauma and brutality 24-7, consuming art that usually encompasses some or all of that, covering the Derek Chauvin trial in real time. Maybe I don't want that right now. You know, like I'm all stocked up on on that. Yes. That doesn't change the fact that a whole bunch of people are not tuned in to any of those things. A whole bunch of people might have their jaws on the floor that something like that could happen. Correct. And this might force them or jolt them into 
paying attention. And like you said, not filing it into another police brutality, another story I've heard. We have to confront this. And even this interview, I have to confront this so that I can understand it. I love this interview. (laughs) No, because I didn't know what we were talking about. And I have to say, I appreciate this. I love this. And by the way, this is why I left my corporate gig to become an artist was to engage in conversations precisely like the one we're having. What you're saying is, here's the thing I think about. There can be nothing, forget healing of this country, just put healing out of the picture for a second, and just reconciliation. How can there be anything approaching reconciliation without truth-telling? What are we trying to do? The grand swath of the country has not been taught history the proper way. I wasn't taught history the proper way. I'm not that old. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And my history books sucked. We weren't taught anything. It wasn't until I got to college that I was like, wait a minute, what? And then I went and reached for every course and every book and everything I could grapple with so I could figure out, well, they taught me nothing. So how, forget healing, but how do we get to reconciliation without truth? And I'm just personally not in the business of, there are plenty of people who are in the business of fantasy, and that's fantastic for them. We need that. But I think with a piece of art, sure, is there a piece of this that it feels like throwing a Molotov cocktail into an already burning building? (laughs) Yes, but that's timing. We don't own the timing. You know, we don't own the timing of a piece. And the great thing about art is you get to engage with it now or turn it off now and come back to it two years from now when you're ready. It's still going to be sitting there. And you may find, actually, (laughs) now I'm ready to fucks with this. I wasn't ready two years ago. Now I am. Very possible for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Did it ever even cross your mind or was there even enough time between them announcing the George Floyd trial and the release date for you to consider waiting like they I mean they've done that on episodes of like SVU right like a building blows up in real life and they're like oh we're gonna hold that episode for a month did that ever come into conversation I mean I can't speak about that really I mean and I don't control those things this studio controls it by the way I don't even control the pandemic which shut us down for a year you don't I don't I don't contrary to popular belief a lot of people have been writing you created the pandemic oh my god I'm gonna tell you first (laughs) I did not but But there's timing to these things, right? Like we could have come out a year ago. Like this, this is just timing of life. We came out when we came out. I happen to be a firm believer because every step of this journey has been this. The timing is right. It might not feel right, Mm -hmm. but the timing is always right. I feel like the show's right on time. I don't feel out of step with the show coming out now at all, at all, personally. There's not a bit of me that's like, oh, I wish we came out two months from now. I don't. Oh. Because I don't think it'd be any easier for people two months from now, if we're being honest. And if we think a year from now, this isn't going to still be relevant or hard. (laughs) We're fooling ourselves. Okay, so the end, right? Like, let's go like the horror part. We know the terror part. The terror part was terrorizing. But the horror part, you know, this is an anthology. So I expect we're done with the Emery's or at least these Emery's in this place right now, the whole story in an anthology. But at the end, I didn't feel like, okay, that's what was happening or that's why she sees this monster. I didn't feel like I fully got it as far as these little 
nuggets and clues about the supernatural portions by the end. I still feel like, wait, what the fuck happens to them? <laughs> Do they stay? Do they leave? Do the demons come and kill the white people? Like I think that all of those feelings, I don't, this sounds cagey, but I think all of those feelings are absolutely true and absolutely valid. And I know it sounds like I'm perhaps deflecting. I will tell you this, I'm drawn to things that uh, question I don't believe in easy answers. Again, how far have we gotten is what I will say. This is a show that happened 70 years ago. How far are we? 70 years later, how far are we? So easy answers and happy endings and wrapping things up with a bow, <laughs> not particularly of interest to me. And also kind of in line with the horror genre. We don't always get a happy ending or an easy answer. No, think about some of the most terrifying films of all time. I mean, oh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. I mean, that is not a happy ending. <laughs> That's a fucked yeah. up ending. And he cast a black dude. And this was a, during the civil rights. That is, a, that is yeah. a bleak ending. And The Exorcist has a rather ambiguous ending, if you really don't think about it. <laughs> but that's true horror, right? Like, I'm an actual horror head, like an old school horror buff. I'm not into, like, stupid shit. Like, I like shit that, like, scares the living crap out of me. And those things are largely complex and ambiguous and not really here for your feelings. <laughs> like, The Exorcist was not here for your feelings. But that's the thing about horror, though, I would say, like, not to get all nerdy about it, but what I love about it is that it's always grappled with complex social, religious. I mean, The Exorcist is a story of faith. It's a story of distrust in the church. It's a story of uh, mother and daughter's interpersonal dynamics. There's all sorts of deep shit going on under the surface, which to me is the true horror. And that was the ambition anyway, to root it in something very human um, and let the supernatural kind of come from that. Marvin, I could talk to you all day. I really appreciate you and I appreciate your work, even when it hurts, even if I don't love it or I wish you did it more gently. I appreciate you making it. It is scary out there and it's scary in this world that you created. Thank you for your candor and your time. I've really enjoyed it. I'm humbled by the conversation and thank you for your honesty. I really enjoyed this. Oh, you're so welcome. Bye-bye. So a few big takeaways for me from that conversation. One is that Little Marvin and the team behind them did indeed consider the climate. They did consider the mental state of the community and they considered the mainstream's longstanding avoidance or denial at just how brutal being Black in this country has been. They considered all of those things and they decided to go there anyway. In a sense, my reaction was, why do we need this? We don't need this. We've been recognizing how bad it is and how bad it's been. And his answer is perhaps, no, you haven't. You can't look at this like this is too much for you, but this is true. So does it make it any less accurate or authentic because I don't want to see it? No. You can't really claim to confront the issue if you can't face the whole issue, including the most depraved aspects of the issue. And that's a valid point. Also, everything isn't for everyone all the time. And that's okay too. Like maybe there's a huge part of the country that doesn't need to see this, me included, doesn't need to be reminded of all of the trauma, but there is a whole part of this country that does. And this project, I think in a way was intended for them. It also kind of reminded me of a controversy that came up last year with this Netflix film called Cuties. If you don't remember, it was a French film intended to highlight just how damaging social media can be to young girls, to their self-image, 
how it contributes to the sexualization of children. And people were freaking mortified. I mean, people were banging down Netflix's door, calling it kitty porn, condemning the filmmaker and suggesting that it was a feast for pedophiles. I remember reading that and being like, yo, pedophiles get off on watching a laundry detergent commercial. I mean, you know, Toys R Us, Cheerios, like this film was not made for them. Some of my own colleagues took a major issue with that project and no amount of pushback or conversation from me could convince them that it was valid. And at the time, I really couldn't relate. I mean, I felt like people were going nuts and paying attention to the wrong thing. They were angry at the filmmaker for telling a very disturbing truth about a very disturbing trend in our society. And it was like they were mad that it was disturbing instead of being angry at society for letting it happen. In the case of them, I kind of fell into a different camp, but it was the same argument. I felt like, how dare you make this? How dare you give this to us right now? And now, even though, I mean, I still wish I didn't have some of the imagery from this project burned into my brain, I can now look at it more objectively and say, you know, he has a right to tell this part of the story, even if I don't want it. I don't have to watch it. You don't have to watch it. You can come back to it in two years when you're ready, like he mentioned, or maybe you'll never be ready. But maybe someone else is ready. Maybe someone else to see this, to be shocked and horrified and completely disgusted. And maybe that's the thing that will keep someone or some group from looking away from the tragic truth of this country's history, like the covenants in the real estate contracts that it's named after. I mean, like those racist Jim Crow era laws still on the books in some places that were expected to gloss over, ignore, move on from, you know, continue anyway. It's like, The true trauma and atrocities that we have endured are there, whether we want to acknowledge them or not. At the very least, this project gives us all some things to think about. And I hope that this conversation was as illuminating for you as it was for me. Thanks for tuning in to Acting Up. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Acting Up. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. Follow us on Instagram at actingup.pod. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell.